Brooks was reading through Ephesians, and I love the book of Ephesians. At some point, at some point, I'm going to have to teach through the book of Ephesians, I think, because the, the six chapters, it's kind of short. The first three chapters are just weighty, serious, heavy theology, and then the last three chapters, Paul just brings it down to earth and just says, all right, now that you know all of this, what do you do with it? And here's how you live it out. It's just, it's awesome. So, um, but I will say this, today, this morning, we are actually closing out our series on the book of Ruth, uh, which I think has been kind of, I always like this book. There's a lot to it. It's just a little book, but there's a lot of a lot of good stuff in there. And then next week, I want to encourage you, uh, ask somebody to come with you. I think uh, a couple weeks ago, we had the uh, one-a-day, I call it the one-a-day vitamin challenge, right? The one-a-day challenge. So every day next week, ask somebody to come with you to church. Because I think we're going to, be, we're going to start the Gospel of John next week, and it's going to take us, um, I'm just going to prep you, it's going to take us a while to get through John. John is full of goodness, and um, we're going to teach through that uh, for probably, well, I'm not going to tell you because you won't come if, we, if I tell you how long it's going to take us to get through it. Um, but it'll be excellent. It's going to be excellent. And I want to thank everybody for praying for me last week. Um, tested negative, but I told Brooks, I said I didn't trust the, I didn't trust the test. So... Feeling better this morning. Thank you. I'm exhausted. We moved into our house. Thank you for a lot of folks that came out yesterday and unloaded stuff. And uh, if you want to come back and help us unbox it and put it up, you're more than welcome to do that. No, just kidding. People are like, no, no, no. That's the nice part. That's the slow part. We can get all that done. So I am great. It's just great to be here with everybody. So, um, we are going to jump in and we're going to go ahead and get started with Ruth. We're going to finish up Ruth today. Um, oh, and by the way, no, I better not. Let's, let's see. So first of all, let me go through the, the worship guide. We got notes. You got your notes in the worship guide for this morning. And then we have um, in the worship guide, we got the little tear-off card. So this, this tears off. If anybody, if we don't have your contact information, give us this. I'm not putting you on a you know, junk mail or whatnot, but I do want to just be able to get in touch with you if you're sick or if you need prayer. And then on the back, though, there is a place for prayer request. So if you've got prayer requests, fill that out. If you have a prayer answered, fill that out, because we would love to praise you with that as well. And then um, you can take a look at the worship guide. We do have a YouTube channel and several, and podcasts, so you can look at that on here as well. Um, you can hear more of me, so Yay. <laughs> I'm just saying. All right, let's jump in. My wife tells me not to go off script, so I better not. Let's just open up the book of Ruth. Let's open up the book of Ruth to chapter 4, starting at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name 
saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Herzon, Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. And thank you, Lord, that we may learn from your word. All of these narratives, stories, all of these books in the Bible, Lord, you have placed there for a reason. And Father, I pray that you would just open up, your, uh, open up our hearts and our minds this morning, Lord, to receive your word, what it means, how it applies to our life, Lord, how we can live it out every day. Even in an ending of this great book of Ruth like this, Lord, open our hearts so that we may learn what you would have us to learn just in these short verses this morning. And Father, we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week, so the last week, thank you to Ryan for filling in last week. Great job. And I think last week we saw in the very beginning of chapter 4 how Boaz dealt shrewdly with the unnamed redeemer uh, with the consequence of redeeming Ruth and Naomi, legalizing the contract, right, making public declaration of his intention to redeem the land and marry Ruth. So, in this last section, though, this morning, we're going to see the consummation of God's plan working through the lives of these ordinary people, Boaz, Naomi, and Ruth. And we're going to see how God consummates, finishes his plan throughout what we have seen kind of as a bird's eye view in this whole book. So, Boaz made Ruth his wife. Then he went to her. Now, I will say this. The beauty of preaching through books of the Bible is you preach through the whole book, right? You teach through the whole book. You can't pick your favorite verses. You can't avoid those verses that say, "Mm, you know, that's a little controversial. I don't know if I'm going to talk about that. So this morning is one of those instances where Boaz made Ruth his wife. Then he went to her. Boaz went to Ruth went into her is a euphemism for sexual intercourse between Boaz and Ruth. And I see everybody look up, what? Oh my word, Brett hadn't been here a month. He's already talking about sex in church. What is going on? Amen. Amen. (laughs) Um, I have something going through my mind and I'm not going to say it. My wife is shaking her head no, okay. But the thing is, when you preach through books, right, when you teach through books of the Bible, you've got to address all of these issues, which is good. I think it's good because, let's face it, we all are human beings. We all live, you know, in Holt Summit, New Bloomfield, Jeff City, California. We live in these places, right? We live on this earth. We, we, we have to talk about this, right? So, Boaz went into her. It's a euphemism for sexual intercourse. So note the order here, though, in the first few sentences, right? Boaz made Ruth his wife. Then he had intimate relations with her. And then a sexual relationship between man and woman 
has been designed by God to be exercised in an ideal world according to God's plan within, within marriage, right? Within the marriage relationship. Although today, uh, we have made sex basically just a fulfillment of our own stimulation and pleasure a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times with little to no deep commitment to a relationship. Okay, it's become a superficial act, pure stimulation, in which a lot of times we just attempt to selfishly satisfy our own desires and urges. I mean, watch television. Any, any television show is all about casual, very, very casual one-night stands, casual sex. No relationship, right? Nothing. Homosexuality is, a sim- is simply, I think, nothing more than a perverse glorification of same-sex pleasure, right? I mean, homosexuals define themselves based on the act, not necessarily as a relationship. So what modern man and woman has made sex is much to the contrary of what God designed sex to be. God intended sex to be the consummation of a close and personal relationship within the marriage covenant. Now that said, I will talk about some other things, but of course we do live in a fallen world, right? We live in a fallen world. Things are not perfect. All of us are not perfect. We certainly strive to be, to be perfect, and we, we fall, you know, we do things. Um, you know, I was uh, listening to, there was a, I guess a Sirius XM radio station that has Christian music. There was an interesting song that I was listening to and it was, I love Jesus, but I cuss, but sometimes I cuss a little, <laughs> you know. And it's, it's just this whole idea that while God has given us a model of the marriage relationship, not only here in Ruth, but also actually in Ephesians chapter 6, when God compares the marriage relationship to the relationship between his son and the church, that's the model And I think we should strive for that, but we should also understand that all of us here are human beings and that, you know, we should pray, we should strive, we should understand that this is God's model, but sometimes we may fall short, and that's when we get on our knees and pray and ask for forgiveness. So the primary biblical picture of a marriage is that also of covenant, right? Covenant relations... God's covenant relations with his people are described in the language of marriage. And what's a covenant? Covenant is essentially a promise, an agreement. We get our meeting and models for, the re- for relationship with each other within marriage, just even as friendship from the covenantal relationships between God and his people. So there's three main elements in the marriage covenant that we can look at from the Bible. One is the promise of committed love between the husband and wife. Two, the public declaration of the covenant by which a new family is created. And three, the personal communion between husband and wife in the relationship, right? So Boaz in chapter 4 demonstrates all three of these aspects, right? He loves Ruth. He does what he does within the law to make sure that he's the one that gets to marry Ruth. He publicly declares his covenant Uh, with her through the redemption of her and her family and then there's the marriage in in verse 13 and then three they have sexual relations within the marriage covenant 
So God's covenant with his people is permanent, and the marriage covenant between a man and a woman is also supposedly, this is God's model, it is permanent. Um, When we think of marriage as a model of God's relationship with his people, then we have a solid foundation on which to build our marriage. Now, like I said, we do, however, live in a radically corrupted world. No one is perfect. And you guys are looking at me and you think, man, Pastor Brett's awesome. Don't let me fool you, (laughs) okay? Because being transparent, believe it or not, I am also a human being. And as a human being, you know, none of us are perfect. We all live in this radically corrupted world. And like everything else, God's ideal of marriage is also affected by this total corruption of sin, all right? That said, I think that we must, as Christians and as a church, love and care for those who have been hurt by the effects of sin, whether it's in marriage or other places, and we need to strive to prevent these detrimental effects through the community that we have as a church. We can love on one another, support one another, uphold one another, be there for one another. In the good times, we can laugh together, and in the bad times, we can cry together and hold each other together, all right? Come together and build up one another through the community, through teaching, right? Teaching, we all need to learn to live better. That's what, you know, we need to learn to love the Lord. We need to learn who who the Lord is, and then we need to understand what the Bible says and live that out pastoring, counseling, all of these things. So in some respects, though, it also seems to me, and I preached on a, 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 seri- a, a, a message on widows. This was several months ago at a different place. Um, and it seems to me that single parents actually, I think, have become the new widows. I think single parents have become almost the new widow in modern times. And the Bible has a lot to say about how Christians and the church should love and care for widows within the church and within our community at large. So I think we should keep that in mind as well when we look at, especially single parents, all right? They need our help. Parenting is hard enough. Where's Caleb? Caleb, congratulations. He and Steph had their first child. Everything is great. Brother, the journey is just starting. (laughs) But I think all of us can come together as a church and as a community to not only help new parents like Caleb and Steph, single parents like many of us here today, you know, and, you know, all of us can, can come together as a church to uphold, build up, support, and love each other. So again, as we look at sex in the modern context, right, its primary function seems to be purely satisfaction of our own selfish desires. And notice today, notice today, having children has become something that people, I mean, that we should avoid, right? When the whole rigmarole about Roe versus Wade and the whole, um, Uh, Supreme Court decision was handed down, we saw a lot of comments about children and nobody, you know, we shouldn't, we don't want children 
children are second class. I mean, look, let's face it, you know, there's a whole group of people that unfortunately are misguided and believe that we can kill our children in the womb if they're, if they're quote-unquote unwanted, right? But having children has, be, has become, it seems to me, something to completely avoid. And in the, in the scriptures, though, sexual relations is not just for pleasure. It is for pleasure, but it's not just for pleasure. It's also, and I think just as importantly, it's for reproduction. It is for children, right? Boaz and Ruth are intimate, and Ruth gets pregnant with a child. God's providence is visible here in their relationship because think about it. Ruth and Malin, in the first chapter of Ruth, had been married probably close to 10 years and not had a child. Boaz and Ruth immediately, though, conceive and have a son. God's hand, again, was working behind the scenes in their life to make sure that his plan, God's plan, was accomplished. Moreover, I think in verse 13, it's clear that the Lord gave Ruth, gave Ruth the ability to conceive and have a child. The Lord came, the Lord provided the child, right? The Lord's timing is perfect, and he works his plan to the benefit of, and the honor of God's name, and then consequently also to the joy and delight of all of us as his people. So, something I think also should be here stated um, about conception and birth, right? And the Lord's work in both of these activities. The Lord had a plan, and he was working behind the scenes in the lives of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. God weaves together all of their lives and all of their decisions all of their everyday occurrences right, into his magnificent plan, and we witness God doing something uh, in the lives of Ruth and Boaz. And we can see, when we read this little book, we can see things that they cannot see, right? We have a bird's eye view. And what we see is that the son, all of this that was going on in the first couple of chapters of Ruth, we see now that God has provided a son to Ruth and Boaz. They name him Obed, the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, who is the forefather of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Okay, the Lord has plans for this child of Ruth and Boaz before the child was even born. And while the Bible states that the Lord gave Ruth conception, we also see that life begins long before the child is physically born into the world. The biblical witness leaves no doubt that life begins at conception and that God, through his providence, his plans, he conceives life. All right, in chapter 1, after the death of her husband and sons, Naomi could not even imagine in her mind how God could provide her with a son and an heir to, to take care of her and the family. Right? Remember, she was bitter. She cried out, the Lord has gone out against me. Woe is me. She went to Moab full, and she came back to Bethlehem empty. But what she didn't realize 
was that she was far from empty. She was far from empty. Remember, Ruth stuck with her. Ruth committed herself to her, and Ruth committed herself to God. And like I said, there in that verses 16, 17, that is probably one of the greatest conversion stories in the Bible right there. And Ruth was the means through which God provided Naomi with a grandson. The people in town bless him. They pray that God will make his name great. He will be one to take care of Naomi in her old age. The townspeople proclaim that this grandson is worth more than seven sons, right? So while Naomi in chapter 1, she couldn't even possibly imagine how, he's, how she was going to survive, despite the fact that Ruth was with her. I don't know, you know. I've gone away full and came back empty. And Ruth is probably looking at her. You're not empty. I'm standing right here next to you. I've dedicated myself to you. She couldn't even imagine that. But now in chapter 4 at the end, she has a grandson who is praised and blessed by all the people who will one day be in the line of the Messiah. So God can achieve what the human mind cannot conceive. We talked about that. God can achieve what the human mind cannot conceive, and he proves it to Naomi throughout the whole book of Ruth, culminating in the son who's the grandson of David, who's in the line of the Messiah. And remember, in the beginning, Naomi had bitterly accused God of emptying her life, robbing her of her husband and two sons, but now the women console her. She may have lost her sons, but now she has a daughter-in-law. And what a daughter-in-law Ruth is. Ruth loves Naomi. And in fact, you know, like I said, we see that Ruth, the Moabitess, a stranger, an immigrant from some place that was a mortal enemy to the Jews, is showing some of the greatest Examples of kindness, loving kindness in the Bible. Right? So whereas modern definitions of love tend to view the word love as an emotional term, in the Old Testament, love is fundamentally an expression of commitment. Commitment. The kind of devotion to which Ruth had given her expression in, ver in chapter 1, verse 16, 17, right? Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people are my people, and your God is my God. And love is not just demonstrated in words, right? It's expressed in acts of kindness, placing the welfare of others over yourself. And I think more than anyone else, we have Ruth. Ruth embodies this fundamental principle of, you know, the Israelites' ethic. You shall love your God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? I think it's interesting that Ruth the Moabitess, who comes from a country, let's say, let's compare it this way. Ruth is the Iranian who comes to Israel to live, and while she is not treated very well, she shows more kindness and more loving kindness than probably the native Israelites. Ruth sets the example. God said, my people, you will love the stranger. But now in Ruth, it's the stranger that is actually offering this love and kindness to others. And it's in the time of Judges, when everybody did what was right in their own eyes, when Israel was under attack from without and within, 
Sin and disobedience abounded, right? And it might seem, well, Israel's going down. I mean, everything's chaos. There's no leader. Without a leader, stuff just degenerates, right? And it's just turmoil and strife. But think about it. In the time of the judges, when everybody did what was right in their own eyes and chaos abounded, God was working in the lives of this family, Ruth and Naomi, and bringing them together with a guy who was wealthy, good-looking, and single. (laughs) Okay? And he preserved Boaz, and he preserved Ruth and Naomi, and he brought them together in a time that seemed like everything was just going to disintegrate. So in, this li- in the lives of this ordinary family, two people trusted God, and God provided for them, and God blessed them, all right? Two people decided that no matter what the circumstances, they would live and demonstrate this loving kindness to each other, regardless of the cost. And this family, used by God, working His plan in and through their lives, was blessed beyond all imagination. And was used not only to bless Ruth and Boaz and their family, but to bless peoples all over the entire world. To bless us right here, 21st century, Summit Community Church in Holt Summit, Missouri. So we're going to close out Ruth, but I want to just talk a few minutes about a couple of takeaways. And it's a chain, one after the other. One leads to the other. So very quickly, number one, God is sovereign. He's in control. God's plans may not be your plans, and in fact, they probably aren't your plans, okay? But just because you can't see the end of the tunnel of dark providence doesn't mean you're going to be stuck there forever, all right? Remember, God can achieve what the human mind cannot conceive. Naomi, at the end of chapter 1, she couldn't even conceive of a way out of her predicament. Couldn't even conceive it. She didn't even know. I mean, she must have forgotten that Boaz was a redeemer in Bethlehem. Not only one, but there were two. She just forgot. She didn't even realize and fully appreciate Ruth, who was committed to her. Right? And while Naomi couldn't fathom it, God had no problem with it. Not at all. So by the end of this little book, not only does Ruth have a husband... And her and Naomi have a son who is Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, the forefather of Jesus Christ. In fact, while Naomi laments in chapter 1 that she went away full and came back empty, now the women in chapter 4 at the end say this, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi went from being without hope to being blessed with a son and daughter-in-law who is worth more than seven sons. Naomi was so focused on sons, but now the women in town say, look, sons, great. Your daughter-in-law is worth more than seven. Seven in the Bible is the, symbol, is the number of perfection. So in other words, the townspeople were saying, your daughter-in-law is better than the perfect son. The perfect son. So none of this worked out the way Naomi thought or planned it would. It worked out better. It worked out better. 
So we're reminded, right, God is sovereign, we are not. Even our best and most righteous efforts, good and needed and grace-driven as they are, cannot enable us to take control of our lives, right? We're just simply not in charge of what goes on in the world. I mean, face it, a lot of us, I mean, I don't know, I'm just being transparent here. I don't feel like I'm in charge of anything that goes on in my life sometimes. I mean, really, you know? Yes, we have responsibility. We have responsibility and we make decisions every day, every minute of every day. But nothing we can do can change the truth of our finiteness, right? We're finite. We're limited. We are the creatures, but God is the creator. Brooke said it this morning from Ephesians. We are the creatures, but God is the creator, all right? Now, so God is sovereign, and because, God, let's go to number two. So, number one, God is sovereign. Number two, the next link in the chain, because God is sovereign, then we as disciples of, of God can have hope. We can have hope. And this hope is not based on just like wishful thinking, unfounded optimism, you know, but it's on the character and goodness of God. So why does Ruth try to go out and go find food in chapter 2, right? Why does she just, she gets up and goes? Because she trusts in the sovereignty of God and therefore has a biblical hope that the Lord will guide her steps to the right place, which he did. Hope acts, okay? Hope makes plans. Hope dreams dreams. Biblical hope manifests itself in strategic action. Action as well as integrity and generosity, right? Fearful people with no solid foundation for their hope other than, let's say, themselves and their material things, right, have a hard time being generous, being faithful, being ethical. They have no foundation. Their foundation is shaky, Scriptural hope, on the other hand, is based on the character of God. And there's no more solid foundation than the character of God. So the triune God, creator, sustainer of the universe, giver of life. I mean, think about this. I was telling Karen this the other day. Look, think about this. If God is actually who he says he is, if God really is who he says he is in Scripture, then we should never have to worry. We should never lose hope, no matter what our circumstances are. It's hard, believe me. Trust me, I know it can be hard. All of you know it can be hard. But if God is who He says He is, then that's where we need to place our trust, right there. Naomi, at the end of chapter 1, became bitter without hope, um, even though she still apparently knew God, knew God and all this kind of thing. But just because God's dark clouds of providence may overshadow you now, doesn't mean the storm won't pass, right? It will pass. And by the end of chapter 4, everybody's singing praises to Naomi, their child, their new family, the whole nine yards. Okay? Scriptural hope is rooted in the character of God who will help us through the dark providence. Remember the hymn. Behind a frowning providence, 
He hides a smiling face. So three. All right, so God is sovereign. Because God is sovereign, we can have hope. Because we can have hope, then we can act in faith. Faith has an action component, right? People with no hope in the present or the future are immobilized. They're stuck. Individuals, groups, churches who have no hope, you know, we can't muster the, you know, the energy to get out of bed and go look for food like Naomi, right? They can't remember that, you know, there's not just one Redeemer back in Bethlehem. There's actually two, right? They don't make plans. They don't dream dreams. They don't step out in faith. However, all of us who rest in the sovereignty of God, who, whose foundation God is our hope, right, we can get up and we can go do something because we know God will direct our steps. We know the character of God and we rely on the character of God. My friends, to me, this is freeing. This is liberating. We're not encumbered by our fears and doubts and the worst case scenarios that we always play out in our head. You know, Karen always tells me, you know, something happens, my mind immediately goes to like all these worst case scenarios. Oh my word, what's going to happen? This is going to happen, this is going to happen. But if God is sovereign and we have hope in God and we can act, guess what? We know, we know God is who he says he is. And this is liberating, it frees us from all this stuff. We're freed from indecision, right? Many Christians, many churches are stuck because they, they're kind of under the impression, maybe a lot of people have been taught in churches that they need to make sure they make the right choice or they're going to be out of the will of God and who knows what's going to happen then. My friends, listen, I'm telling you, listen to me for here. If God is sovereign and God is a foundation for our hope, we can never be out of the will of God. And we're like, whoa, what? That's jolting. But it's freedom. Okay, now I'm not saying we can just sit around and sin and disobey God at will and still think we're in the will of God, okay? At this point, we're not talking about the will of God. We're talking about obedience and abiding in Christ. Okay, different. Di we're talking about faith here, not, all right? But if we're followers of, of Christ and we bathe our decisions in prayer, right, in Scripture, in the godly counsel of friends, right, then we can be assured that God is with us in our decisions. And that allows us to move out in faith and confidence not based on worldly notions, but in the character of God. All right, so number four, God is sovereign, right? Because God is sovereign, we have hope. Because we have hope, we can act. And now because we act, we can act in faith. We rest assured that God will guide our steps according to his glory and our good. Job, Job in Job 31.4 asks in a rhetorical way, does not he see my ways and number all my steps? Psalm 37 the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. So when we set out and act in faith, there's no need to worry or continue, again, going through all these worst-case scenarios, right? Scripture promises us, promises that God will establish our, set, our steps if we follow his ways. And if we do fall, the Lord will uphold us. Right? We may slip, we, we're going to run into obstacles, right? we may have to go through some trials and problems, but the Lord God will never leave us and never forsake us. Now, I think this is liberating, this is freeing, 
Now we can take risks for the kingdom of God. Now we can try things to reach the lost. Now we can do stuff to edify the saints. We can be bold. We can be daring. We can be courageous. Right? We could try, you know, you try something and, and fail. Don't worry. We could fall, but we're not going to be forgotten. We can learn from our failures, get up, and try it again. All right? So now number five. Right? God is sovereign because God is sovereign. We have hope because we have hope we can act. When we act in faith, we can know that God guides our steps. And then finally, sometimes acting in faith means that others have to act for us. And we must put our faith and trust in them. Now, this reality challenges all of us, right? We all feel the desire to trust ourselves. I want to take control. You know, I got to map out all the scenarios and every, every which way. And I want to be control of my own destiny, right? The, I am the captain of my ship, right? I am the, uh, the uh, it's, my, it's my life. What, is, what was the old Frank Sinatra song? It's my life. I did it my way. That's what it is. I did it my way. It's my life, and I did it my way. Friends, let me tell you something. I don't know about y'all, but again, like I said, I don't feel like sometimes I can control anything that goes on in my life, right? But sometimes God places our lives in the hands of somebody else. Remember in chapter 3 and 4, Ruth wasn't even mentioned. Boaz did all the work. He sat down with the Redeemer. He said, look, I want to marry, you know, you're the first one in line. Ruth and Naomi had to place their trust, their lives in the hands of Boaz to work it out. They just had to sit back and do nothing. Sometimes God places people in our lives that we have to trust, right, that we have to trust. And when the Lord does this, we must pray and trust that the Lord knows what he's doing, which, again, let's go back to point number one. God is sovereign. God does know what he's doing. Naomi and Ruth lived faithfully, but they discovered something that we must all discover, that God rules and does all things perfectly. He is our hope. In fact, God is our only hope. Truly, we have nothing but the triune God at the end of the day. When all is said and done, all we have is God at the end of the day. And in only having God then we actually have everything. God has not withheld any good thing from us. God has given us his own son that we may turn and give him all we have. Remember, though, that while we may have blessing today or dark providence today, the best is yet to come. 